assistant. Now, Igor, what brain did you get? Would you mind telling me whose brain it was? Did you bring me Hans Delbruck's brain? And Igor goes, well, uh, you won't be angry? And Frankenstein says, I will not be angry. Igor says, Abby someone. Frankenstein says, Abby someone? Abby who? Normal. Abby normal. That's it. I'm almost sure that was her name. Abby normal? Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long, 54 inch wide gorilla? Is that what you're telling me? Of course, the rest of the story is about, it's a, like I said, it's a horror comedy, and I don't, apparently from your responses, few of you have seen it, but <laughs> I thought it was a really good analogy of how the various parts are assembled in a church, how you know, we try to do the very best we can <laughs> to assemble the parts, and we hope that the sum total of all these different parts is going to somehow be human life. But uh, we, in fact, can't create life of the church. God has already done that. But it is our responsibility to do our part, the part that we have been assigned, to the very best ability for the good of the body and not for our individual use. So though we are dissimilar in our functions, in our thinkings, in our practices, we use these various parts to create body life, the life of the church. Of course, you're all familiar with that analogy. It's used a lot. You understand the concept of how a well-working church is similar to a well-working body. You understand that we have different roles to play and that the role of each person is not for our own glorification or edification or amusement, the role of each person, the gift that each person brings is meant to make the body function well. You understand that you are not the church, but you're part of the church. You are not the body, but you are part of the body. You are not the bride of Christ, but you are part of the church, which is the body of Christ. The church needs uh, every part of the body. And we tend to think that some parts are less useful, less honorable. And like Terry Johnson, some people have to be the tonsils and the appendices. <laughs> but the reality is that we're all necessary. We all have a function in the church. But I suppose the real question is not what part am I or what is my spiritual gift? The real question is how do I use or how do I employ my giftedness, uh, how do I function uh, in the church? And that's the question that we want to ask as we approach our text today from Romans chapter 12 and beginning in verse 1. Now you notice that there's a, a stark change, a shift has taken place between where we left off last month in chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 because in the last 11, verse, 11 chapters, Paul has been building heavy doctrine. He's been giving us deep teaching about God, about salvation, about Christ. Now things um, change uh, rather abruptly because now he is taking what we have learned, the doctrine we have learned, and now he's applying it to how we are to function in light of all of that we have learned. Having concluded 11 chapters from this profound stirring teaching about what God has given believers, now Paul charges us to give back to God, to take what we have learned and give to God in 
response or reaction or reflection to what God has given us. Um, some time ago, John MacArthur said, Years ago, a tearful and obviously distraught young woman approached me at a conference where I was speaking. She told me a story that I'd heard many times. She said, I can't seem to live the Christian life in the way I should. I'm frustrated. I don't have spiritual victory or a sense of accomplishment. I struggle with the simplest forms of obedience, and I'm constantly defeated. Can you help me? I said, well, what's been your approach to solving these problems yourself? She replied, I've tried everything. I've attended churches where they speak in tongues, have healings, have all kinds of extraordinary spiritual experiences. I've spoken in tongues myself, had ecstatic experience. I've been prophesied over. I've experienced several supposed miracles. I've been slain in the spirit. But despite all of that, I'm not pleased with my life, and I know God isn't pleased. I've tried everything to get from him all that I can. I'm not satisfied. I'm still miserable, and I want more. I think you've just put your finger on the problem, I said. The key to spiritual victory and true happiness is not trying to get all we can from God, but in giving all that we are and have to Him. Countless thousands of people today, including many genuine Christians, flock to various churches, seminars, conferences in search of personal benefits, practical, emotional, and spiritual. They hope to receive something new. They do just the opposite of what Paul so plainly emphasizes in Romans. And this forceful and compassionate exhortation of the apostles does not focus on what, we, what more we need to receive from God, but on what we are to give to him. And the key to productive, satisfying Christian life is not getting more, it's giving all. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul makes this transition from the doctrinal portion to the application portion. So it's shifted now from here to the end of the book. And he's saying, in light of all that you have learned, things need to change. You need to do some new thinking, and your new thinking should respond in new behavior. Now, he's making a logical argument, but more than that, he's making an apostolic plea. He's, he's pleading with them in view of all that we have learned about the mercies of God. Well, what have we learned so far about the mercies of God? We've learned about justification and sanctification, uh, election, perseverance, God's providential care, so Paul is saying, in light of all of those things that we have learned, there are some practical applications to these implications. And so he makes this plea, in light of God's tender mercies, considering that, um, you should change in the way you think. What tender mercies? The, that we are justified by faith, that our, our, our sins have been forgiven through the atoning work of, of Jesus Christ, that God works all things together for our good, that God calls those of, who are saved to himself. This is the tender mercies that Paul is pointing us back towards. And he says, therefore, in view of these tender mercies of God, therefore, and remember, whenever you see the word therefore, it's therefore a reason. You should ask, what is it therefore? It's therefore to tell us about something that has gone before. So Paul says, all of these things, all of these tender mercies point us to the therefore. Therefore, 
present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. He's, he's looking back to primarily the, the, the concept of the Old Testament sacrifice. Now, if you've been a Christian or have read your Bible, you realize that there's a lot in the Old Testament having to do with the sacrificial system, that God required these sacrifices. That's not all too different from pagan religions either, where the deity requires a sacrifice. And we tend to think that a sacrifice is something that is very dear to us, that we give up, that we sacrifice, in order to appease an angry deity, to make the, the, the deity happy enough with us. And we see in the Old Testament all kinds of, of uh, costly, bloody, deathly sacrifices. The sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs and, and turtle doves, the sacrifices of cereal offerings. All of these things are, in our mind, the idea of giving away something extremely valuable to pay for whatever wrong thing we've done that's got our God, whomever our God is, angry with us. And yet that's not principally what the sacrifices are about. It's not to be aimed at what we lose. It's aimed at our expression of gratitude, of love. And ultimately, the sacrifices are a picture of what God himself has sacrificed, something exceedingly valuable in order to save us. So the whole sacrificial system points to what God has already done. God has made the supreme sacrifices, and the sacrifices that we make are a reflection of that. We're saying that he's, he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our, our stuff, our substance. He's worthy of our time. He's, he's worthy of all that we have. And so we sacrifice something. Of course, we don't sacrifice blood and and goats and lambs and, and, and cows because Christ has already been the sacrifice for sin. But that doesn't mean the sacrifices themselves have ended. The sacrifice for sin has ended. God still requires a sacrifice. What does he require? He requires our living bodies, a continual sacrifice. Our sacrifice is to be to be living, it is to be, it is to be holy. Uh, in the Old Testament economy, they, they, they were required to bring the, the best, the first fruits, the, the, the most valuable of, of the herd, and they were to be set aside and consecrated to God. I think we often overlook the sacrifice, the sacrifices that God still requires of us. The sacrifices that, uh, that please God. You know, we tend to think, and maybe not overtly, and we certainly would never say this out loud, but we tend to think that God is going to be thrilled to death. He's going to be tickled pink with any spiritually appropriate thought we have, any marginal sacrifice we make. He has to be happy with that because we have given up something for God, and it's his job to be happy about that. But that's not the case. In fact, that's strictly a lie. Back in Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness 
like an everlasting flowing stream. So it is not true that God is going to be happy with any marginal compromise you make to him. Any spiritual thought that you think is appropriate, God's going to have to be delighted with it. When your life is full of evil, he requires us to make living sacrifices, holy sacrifices, acceptable sacrifices. Of course, someone said the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. Well, that's, that's true, and we keep taking back the sacrifice that we've made, but it misses the point. The point isn't that you're sacrificing everything. The point is you're sacrificing something continually, living, ongoing. You keep sacrificing yourselves to God. And secondly, that sacrifice is to be holy. Holy just means that it's set apart. You know, we talk about the communion table before us, and it's just common stuff that's on this communion table, common bread, common juice that represents wine, which represents the blood of Christ. It's just common, but we consecrate those items. We set them apart for a holy use. And so Paul is telling us our living sacrifices are to be holy. They're to be set apart. They're to be consecrated um, to the Lord. It's holiness is separation not from the world, it is separation in the world. And so we, we, we fully engage in the world, but we shun the world's follies. And third, the sacrifice is to be acceptable. It is to be well-pleasing to God. Again, we think any sacrifice we make, God is obliged to accept it and to be pleased with it. It's not about what pleases you to make as a sacrifice. It's about what pleases God, what he finds delightful. Uh, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How many of you, how many of you memorized this verse when you were young Christians? Yeah, I, I, this is one of the ones that was really important to me. Um, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think the greatest social pressure that Christians have is conformity, that we want to look so very much like the rest of the world. We desperately want to communicate to people. Remember that bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? But we live like Christians aren't different, just forgiven. We live like we want to be just like everybody else, but we want to be saved. We want conformity to the world. Uh, we, we, we cherish the same things that the world cherishes. We value the same thing the world values. We, we don't want to be seen as nonconformist. Yeah. Today, I think there's, I don't know what the statistics are recently, but the point is that there's very little discernible difference today between the professing born-again Christian and the secularist when it comes to subjects like divorce and abortion and sexual immorality. We watch what the world watches, and we want to appear to be just like the, the world appears. We don't want to seem like social pariahs, and so we allow the patterns, the standards, the customs of our culture to dictate our behavior instead of the world. So we don't want to appear to be different. We say Christians aren't different, they're just forgiven. But I would tell you that if you're not different, you're probably not Christian either. And Paul uses 
the Greek word here to be transformed, and he uses the word metamorphosis. Of course, you recognize that because that's what we talk about when we talk about a caterpillar changing to a butterfly. He goes through an extreme metamorphosis, a change of form, a, a super change of form, a radical change of form. It's the goal of Christianity is not just simply to be nonconformist. It is to be transformed, not conformed, but transformed. And the, the, we need to have this, this change which makes us totally different, not just kind of different. It's not that we are nonconformist. We are those who are transformed. We have this change of life. And how does this transformation happen? He says this transformation happens as a consequence of having your mind renewed by the renewal of your mind. When you first came to Christ, the first thing you did was you repented. And the word to repent is metanoia. It means to have a change of mind. The first thing you do when you're saved is you have a change of mind. Prior to our initial repentance, we followed the patterns of the world. We accepted what they accepted. We struggled, as they still do, with how do you bury your sin in your subconsciousness? You ask anybody from any other faith, what do you do with the problem of your sin? There's no answer to it. But some point along the way, the Holy Spirit awakened in our hearts our desire for God, our hatred for our sins, and we ran to the cross. If you're a Christian, you know that time happened. When you ran to the cross and you pleaded for God's mercy, you rushed to a Savior, and your life was changed. The mind was not just simply no longer conformed. Your mind has been transformed. Scientists, excuse me, sociologists tell us that by the age of 21, the average young person has seen 300,000 commercial messages all of them arguing from the assumption that personal gratification is the dominant goal of life. And television and social media will continue to reinforce this attitude that your life will be good if you can simply acquire something more. And it is strictly opposite of what the Lord tells us. How are we as Christians supposed to grow in godliness if we invest so much of our time exposing ourselves to worldliness, like constantly watching television? People say, well, I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. I was alarmed recently. Maybe your phone does this too. Every, every Sunday my phone tells me how much my daily average has been on the Internet. Oh, man, really? Did I spend all that time on the Internet? You think about how much time you spend watching TV or looking at Facebook and ingesting the values of the world with no mention of the value of godliness. I mean, I'm not expecting them to. I'm just saying that our input is lopsided. And I'm not advocating that we need to be evangelical monastics, that we need, to, we need to pull away from the world. I'm just saying that we need to march to the beat of a different drummer. Somehow we need to balance the secular input that we're putting in with, with the spiritual input. I don't know. I don't think anyone will do this. I'm not sure I would either, but wouldn't it be a great thing if we decided, this is how much time I'm going to spend on my phone. 
this is how much time I'm going to spend on TV. I'm going to balance it with how much time I spend in church and in reading my Bible and in, and in prayer. If we just said that, that's how I'm going to regulate how much time I spend on Facebook is how much time I spend reading in the Word of God. Uh, a more academic study of the negative impact on, on television was, was done several years ago by this fellow by the name of Neil Postman. He's the professor of communication arts and sciences at New York University, and he wrote the book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in this book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, it was published in 1985, interestingly, what was that, 20 years before Facebook was started up? What was that, 2004, 2003, something like that? Actually, it wasn't called Facebook when it started, but something else like Face Mash or... No. It doesn't matter. At any rate, <laughs> the book comes out in 1985, which was one year after George Orwell's infamous 1984. And George Orwell, in his book, he, uh, he's writing this futuristic no novel. He has this dark vision of what society will become like. It's a society that is controlled by fear. And in 1984, there's Big Brother who dominates the culture and rules everything with, the, with an iron fist. But Postman reminds us that there was another book written a little bit earlier than George Orwell's A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And in Huxley's novel, there's no need for Big Brother because in his ominous vision of the future, people have come to love their oppression as well as the technologies which strip away their capacity to think. Mm hmm Postman writes, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those who deprive us of information, Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us Huxley feared that we would, we would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account one of man's almost infinite appetites for diversions. That was written, what, 1939? What have we become as a culture, as a society? Our thinking has been determined for us by a, a mindless culture. And we, the church of today, are buying into it. But we have to be, we are challenged to be distinctly different in our, in our worldview than the world at large. But what does that actually mean, anyway? What, is it, what does it mean? How would our outlet be changed? How are we to experience this renewal of the mind in an exceedingly mindless age? Well, one thing that it does not mean, and I think most Christians assume that it does, is that we have to start thinking about Christian things predominantly and, and only. We do need to think about Christian things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but 
In fact, it's the, it's the, the basis for all revealed doctrine uh, in our life to think about Christian matters. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if, there, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So yeah, we should think about these things. But the point I'm trying to make is that it's not a matter of just thinking Christian things. That's good. It's not enough. Because we need to think about secular things in a Christian way. We have to deal with the culture that we live in. We have to think about, uh, we have to have a Christian mind about the things that we think about. Well, let's put some practical uh, application to that. We've been talking about the doctrine of, of God. If God uh, has made everything and everyone, and if God has made us to have eternal fellowship uh, with him, if we're going to, if we have that view of God, then we're going to look at cultural questions in a different way. For instance, we're going to look at failure and, and suffering and pain and even death in a different way than the rest of the culture looks at it. For Christian, these things are bad. I'm not saying that they're, they're, bad. they're not bad things. They're, they're terrible things. In fact, we're told that death is the ultimate final enemy. But they're overbalanced by eternal matters. Or conversely, you might say that uh, success and pleasure are not the greatest of all goods. They're good. Yes, we agree. We want to be successful. And there's nothing wrong with pleasure. But it does not compare with being forgiven of our sin, having salvation, inheriting eternal life. Yes, success and pleasure are good things, but they pale in comparison to what God has provided for us. Jesus said, what good will it do a man to gain everything, gain the whole world, and yet forfeit his soul? We get that, but that's the point I'm trying to make. It's not that you don't think about cultural things and secular things. It's that you think about them in an exceedingly different way because you've had a transformed mind. Let's move on. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to him. Some time ago, I came across this story about these two Christian men, mature Christian men, and um, one thought himself to be quite mature. And so he asked his friend, brother, uh, please pray for me for, for humility. By the way, never, never ask someone to pray that God will humble you. So he says, you know, pray, pray that I might be humble. Pray that I might be nothing. And his friend says, brother, you are nothing. Take it on faith. So Paul wants us to do something like that here in verse 3. He's moving on from this profound development of these first principles of Christian life into this right relationship that we have not only with God but with other people. That's where he's going to go with the rest of this chapter. And so he reminds us that uh, we need to think differently. Uh, interestingly enough, the word think, phroneo, appears four times in these 11 words. It's translated literally, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think with wise thought. Maybe you heard about the pastor. He was in a really big church, and the pastor, during the middle of the week, he walks down to the, in the front of the church, and he's just overwhelmed by you know, the glory and presence of God. He kneels down on the steps in front of the 
the cross, and he says, oh, Lord, I am nothing. I am nothing. The assistant pastor happens to be walking past, and he sees the pastor down there just broken on on the front, and he walks down, and he sits there, oh, Lord, I, too, am nothing. I am nothing. Well, the janitor walks through and sees them, the pastor and the assistant pastor, just pouring it out on the front stage, and the janitor kneels down, oh, Lord, I, too, am nothing. I am nothing. The assistant pastor goes, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> well, that's funny. You'll, you'll, okay. you'll wake up sometime this week and go, that was funny. That's hilarious. All right. Those who exercise God's gracious gifts need to avoid the temptation to have an exalted view of themselves or their giftedness. We need to think not lowly of ourselves and not, don't think that I'm nothing, I'm crud, I'm a worm, I'm just the debris left over when the worm leaves. We need to think rightly of ourselves. But that begins with thinking highly of God and the gift that he has given. God has given me a gift that he intends for the church to be uh, to be uh, intends this gift to be employed by the church. So God grants us this gift in order for us to fulfill the role, the function, the part that we have in the church. So instead of thinking highly of ourselves, we are to think according to the measure of faith that God has given us. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though we are one body in Christ and individually members, one of another. You know, I think that, you know, this is true of children, but it's also true of immature adults, that we have the tendency to think that we're the center of the universe, that the whole world revolves around me. Maturity happens, hopefully happens, in your life when you begin to realize that you are not the center of the universe and the world does not revolve around you, but you are just part of a much bigger picture. Christianity is not about Jesus saving me. There are absolutely no illustrations in all of Scripture about the singularity of salvation. There's no pictures of a million ropes hanging down from the clouds and that Christ has has saved each one of us and we are individually connected to the sky. No illustrations like that at all. In fact, that was a poor one, but you get the point. (laughs) Scripture, however is full of analogies about unity. We see the picture of the church being constructed of many stones. We're each one of those stones. We're living stones built into a temple for God. A picture like we're studying today with the unity of the body. The church is the body. You are not, but you are a part of the body. You are an essential person, an essential function, an essential part of how the body is to work. So we have all of these analogies about unity, about how we use our individual giftedness, abilities, peculiarities, all for the benefit of the body, and the body to the benefit of of Jesus Christ, who is our king, the bridegroom, whatever. You follow me on that? Here in Romans chapter 12, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Um, Ephesians chapter 4, we have these analogies of the church being a body. We are collectively part of the body. 
And we each have an essential part or function, performance to the benefit of the body. And so Paul is now citing this analogy of unity, that we are all together in the body, and the body needs each one, each part uh, in the body. And then, of course, you could start haggling over that. Yeah, but, you know, the body would still be alive without an ear, without an eye, without a tonsil, without a appendix, without a, a finger. Yeah, I get that. You, the church would still be alive without those parts of the body, but it needs all of those parts of the body to be whole. You've heard this. I checked it out this week that a cockroach can live for weeks without its head. You know, it sounds it sounds too stupid to be true, but it actually is true. A cockroach can live for weeks after losing their heads, and that's possible because it, its nervous system. Uh, its blood, its breathing are all decentralized. But if you cut its head off, the cockroach will still be alive for several weeks, but it just stands there. It doesn't do anything until it starves itself to death. It's alive, but it's totally functionless. When you deprive the church of your part, your giftedness, you handicap the church. We need every member. We're tempted to say, well, some parts are more valuable. The head is more valuable than, than the kidney. The hands are more valuable than the foot. And we want to compare each other. That's not the point. The point is the body needs all of those parts, all of those to function well. Uh, verse 6. <coughs> Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to them, or to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads in zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Notice that there's lots of different gifts. And we need to start by acknowledging that and recognizing that because, maybe you've seen this already, whatever interest you have, you think everybody else should have that same interest. You see it like, if your thing in church is women's ministry, you think that's the most important ministry of the church. If it's men's ministry, that's the most important ministry of the church. If it's children's ministry, if it's a ministry to the homeless, whatever you're lit about, you're also irritated that everybody else doesn't share your enthusiasm for that particular thing. Am I right? Somebody say amen. <laughs> the, the, the issue here is that there are a lot of spiritual gifts. There's a lot of different things, and the body needs that variety, needs all, that, all those differences. Then the next question automatically pops up. Well, how do I find out what my spiritual gifts are? And, of course, there are lots of these spiritual gift tests that you can take to determine what your gift is. You know the problem with that? One, they're not in Scripture anywhere. And two, you don't want to know so that you can employ your gift for the benefit of the church. You want to know, like a little kid at Christmas time, what's behind the wrapper? What has Daddy given me? For your own amusement, for your own use, for your own edification. The last thing on your mind is, how do I share my bicycle with my brother? The reality is God has given every single Christian a spiritual gift. And you don't discern what your spiritual gift is by taking a spiritual gift assessment test. You, t you discern your spiritual gift by employing it. 
by doing it. And if it is your spiritual gift, one, you'll be really delighted in using it. Two, other people will say, you are gifted in this area. Three, the church will receive a benefit from that. When I did my internship, I did it in Christian education. I did what Polly's doing. And I was working in a church of about 2,000 people, and it was my job to recruit Sunday school teachers. You'd think with 2,000 people, young people, it would be easy to recruit Sunday school teachers. It was a mess. You know what people would tell me? I'd say, would you please teach Sunday school? They'd say, it's not my gift. How do you know it's not your gift? If Polly asks you to teach Sunday school, don't say that. Be honest and say, I don't want to, but don't say it's not my gift. <laughs> what I found out was the, the people that I guilt-peddled into teaching anyway, about half of them would decide after doing it, it was their gift. The reality is they didn't do it because they didn't want to. They didn't want to be locked in there with a bunch of stinky little kids. You know, they, they wanted to be out in the sanctuary with all the grown-ups. You determine your spiritual giftedness by doing it and have others affirm. Yes, that in fact is your spiritual gift. Anyway, back to Romans chapter 12. So here we're in verse 6, we have this, a list of gifts. He begins with prophecy or prophesying. Uh, that gift also appears in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 18, and Ephesians 4, 11. It begins with this gift of prophecy. Well, it, uh, it's often linked to the gift of apostle. Of course, in Rome, there were no apostles in the Roman church, so he doesn't start with the gift of apostleship. He give, begins with prophecy. And of course, in our day, the word prophet or prophecy is a, an entirely different connotation than it was meant in the scripture. So the prophet has two roles. He has foretelling, predicting the future, but his major role was forthtelling, speaking the words of God. The prophet was the one who was the, the uh, prosecuting attorney, if you will, to God's people who had violated his covenant and they had gone off the rails. Their primary job was to warn the people and say, this is what God says. It wasn't in predicting the future. Paul uh, connects uh, a prophecy in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14 and connects it closely to the gift of speaking in tongues. And from that and other passages, we can conclude that the prophet is someone who speaks under the influence of the Holy Spirit and he communicates to the church um, doctrine. He reminds people of their duty. He gives people um, warning of, of their failure. But it is not first and foremost predicting the future, foretelling. When the foretelling, the predicting aspect took place, it was to verify or to add strength to the forthtelling, thus saith the Lord. It's important that we remember that um, because um, in the New Testament, the one who is the prophet continues to be the one who speaks God's word in such a way that it illuminates truth to us, not primarily that he's predicting the future. So remember that here and also in uh, 1 Corinthians, um, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, and including prophecy, again, in terms of what 
the body has in each person, not what, not what each person has in Christ. That, that makes an important distinction. The gift was not given to you. That's confusing to us because when we are given a gift, it is intensely personal. It's my gift. But it's not that you have been given a gift. It's that the body has been given a gift in you. It's for the use of the body. And so whether that's, uh, whatever that gift is, uh, it, it is for the, the purpose of, of the body. The, there's a lot of gifts mentioned in, in the Bible. There's, uh, there's several different uh, gifts listed in the Bible. There's, uh, in, first, in Ephesians 4.11, he talks about apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Those are mostly offices. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he starts out with offices, and then he adds specific gifts like working miracles, healing, helping, administration, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues. Here in the passage we're looking at Romans 12, there's both the, the phenomenal and the service gifts mentioned. And 1 Peter 4, 11, he just talks about the gifts of speaking and service. Altogether, there's 19 different gifts listed, although... That in itself is problematic because some of those gifts overlap. They're different words for the same one, same gift like helps and serving, probably the same gift. And it was never implied that this is all the gifts that there are. Probably there are spiritual gifts not mentioned in that list of 19. But the point is, again, that all of the gifts are, are to be used for the, the, the health, the function of, of, the, of the body. So, and that's what Paul is talking about here, that the gift is for the church. And all these gifts have a, a purpose, they have a function, they do something. They're not just given so that we are amused. And so that's why Paul scolds the Corinthian church, because they were looking for gifts that were phenomenal, extraordinary, mystical. And they, they were searching for for the unexplainable, the unusual, the unnatural gifts. And Paul says, you know, it's great that you guys all speak in tongues, super. But really, you ought to be seeking the gifts that, that serve the body. Those are the more important gifts. So there are gifts which are more important than others. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church can be edified. So there are greater gifts. What makes them greater? That they benefit the church, that the church is edified, that the church grows, that the church is healthy. Now, moving right along because I'm running out of time, I think the rest of the gifts are pretty self-evident. They don't need a lot of explanation. Um, serving, teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, showing mercy, you know, all of these are intended to be gifts employed for the, for the benefit of the body. Having different gifts according to the grace given to us, let us use them 
If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, and the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So like the Frankenstein monster made up of all these different parts thrown together rather haphazardly from very different backgrounds, very different functions, so are we as a church. But unlike the Frankenstein monster, Unlike Dr. Frankenstein, it's not our job to, to breathe life into the church. God has already created a living body. It's our job, rather, to see what our function is and to do it wholeheartedly so that God's purposes are performed in the church and Christ Jesus is glorified. And I invite the men who come forward now to, to lead us in, in hand out the communion and, and whoever's doing communion song for us, if you'd come forward and let's prepare for communion with prayer. Father, even as we have been this morning exhorted to set aside our common lives to make them spiritual and holy and pleasing to you, so now we set aside these common things, this uh, juice, this bread, and we commit them for a, a holy purpose to represent the body of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us. And as we share in this communion, remind us that it is not 200 or so individuals remembering the cross, but it is one church celebrating one communion, one common table. And we declare as we take the bread and drink the cup that we share life. We share the stuff of life. Whatever happens to you affects me. Whatever happens to me affects you. Father, that we are truly communing with one another, and therefore, that is the communion which pleases you. God, we set aside these lives, and we set aside these elements in the name of Jesus for his church. Amen.